0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, let's get right into it. We're going to start off, unfortunately, with an obituary from the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 9, 2022. Jed Marshall Cohen, March 7, 1933 to November 27, 2022, Author Unknown. With great sadness, we announced the passing of Jed Marshall Cohen on Sunday, November 27, 2022 at the age of 89. Jed was born and raised in Long Island, New York, and spent his teenage years in Harlem where he developed his street smarts. His father Harry introduced Jed to the biggest passions in his life, the the ponies and the stock market. After graduating from NYU Law School, Jed moved to California in the late 50s. And was a successful investment banker and financial advisor for over 50 years, qualitatively improving the lives of countless clients and their families. Jed was a voracious reader and forward-thinking man who pro- uh, processed everything he experienced and read in terms of its significance to the future. While wearing T-shirts, his experience took him to the firm of Kleiner, Bell and Company, Newberger. Loeb & Company, Bear Stearns & Company, Gruntel & Company, Gerard Clower Madison and & Company, and JKM Advisors. He was also associated with members of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under the Kennedy administration. JIT opened his own company, the Investment House, in 2012. JIT started Red Baron's Barn. With the purchase of his first racehorse in the early 1960s, many days were spent at Santa Anita, Hollywood Park, and Del Mar race tracks. He traveled from San Francisco to Hong Kong to watch his horses race. Horses races. When the stock market closed, he could be sure the TV was set to horse racing or investment channels. He was a true scholar of the sport. A highlight of his day was his first conversation with his sons and the various trainers about, uh, about his stable and potential races. Jed cared deeply for the horses, and just as important, he cared deeply for those who cared for them. Jed's love of animals did not stop at the ponies. He and his wife raised many pound puppies, including Brandy, Derby, Patches, uh, Ditto, Hershey, and Trixie, who will miss the scrambled eggs and toasted bagel bits he left on his plate specifically for them. Another one of Jed's hobbies was ice hockey. He had seasoned seats to the Los Angeles Kings at the Great Western Forum but also enjoyed watching games on TV. As with all his endeavors, he established long-standing relationships with the game that extended well beyond its confines. Jed was a people person. He enjoyed people and people wanted, uh, wanted him. Whether for his unique perspective, his razor-sharp humor, advice, quick wit, or ability to talk about nearly any subject matter. Whether he was telling a story or discussing the market, people would be thoroughly engaged and wanting for more. He will be missed by many, but most poignantly by his wife and his three children, two grandsons, brother, niece, and nephew. That was Jed Marshall Cohen. March 7, 1933 to November 27, 2022. Author unknown. From the Obituary Notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, December 9, 2022. All right, on to some national news here. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 5, 2022. Some Republicans Quiet on Anti Semitism at a Cost by David Lauder. Nearly eight decades after the end of the Holocaust and four years after an attack on a synagogue in Pittsburgh that took the lives of 11 people as they prayed, it shouldn't be hard to reject a political leader who openly associates with anti-Semites. For Republican leaders, however, the Trump era has played out as one long series of compromised principles. The last week has highlighted the, uh, the toll that continues to take. With Congress back to work, some Republican leaders have been publicly commenting on former President Trump's decision to sit down for dinner last month at his mar a lago estate with Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, and Nick Fuentes, an internet provocateur who specializes in racism, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. Some have been straightforward, especially in the Senate. Republicans have shown an increased willingness to criticize Trump. That's a sign of how the losses by Trump-endorsed candidates in the midterm elections have reduced his standing in the party. Reduced, however, does not mean eliminated. To gouge Trump's remaining sway, just observe the silence from several of uh, Trump's potential rivals for the 2024 presidential nomination, or watch the tap-dancing of House leaders, especially Republican Rep. Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield, as they try to distance distance themselves from the dinner guests without criticizing the host. A brief refresher on the event in question. On November 22nd, Yeh, who recently lost much of his endorsement business after pronouncing on Twitter to go DeathCon3 on Jewish people, arrived at Mar-a-Logo in a car with Karen Giorno, who worked on Trump's 2016 campaign as his state director in Florida. With them was Fuentes, a 24-year-old, who was amassed an internet following with denials of the Holocaust and statements such as, The founders never intended for America to be a refuge, uh, camp, refugee camp for non-white people, or I don't see Jews as Europeans and I don't see them as part of Western civilization, particularly because they are not Christians. The group was, apparently, waved through security. Then sat down for dinner on the Mar-a-Lago patio with the former president. When other Mar-a-Lago guests began to spread word of the meeting, people close to uh, Trump initially denied that Fuentes was present for the dinner. After that pre, uh, pretense collapsed, Trump acknowledged that he had met Fuentes, but insisted in several statements that on his social media site Truth Social that he didn't know who he was. Notably, now that he uh, does know, he has not said anything critical about Fuentes or Ye. Trump wrote that at the dinner, he and Ye got along great. He expressed no anti-Semitism, and I appreciated all of the nice things he said about me on Tucker Carlson. Why would I agree to meet? Also, I I didn't know Nick Fuentes. Trump has stuck to his refusal to criticize the two even as both Yeh and Fuentes have continued their provocations. Provocations. On Thursday, for example, Yeh conducted an interview with Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, in which he made anti-Semitic jokes and said, I say good things about Hitler. Later in the day on Twitter, he posted a swastika inside the Star of David causing the platforms to suspend his account. For some Trump supporters, the dinner marked a tipping point. That was particularly true among the relatively small band of Jewish figures who have backed Trump. David Friedman, Trump's former lawyer who served as his ambassador to Israel, wrote in a Twitter message addressed to my friend Donald Trump that even a social visit from an anti-Semite like Kanye West and human scum like Nick Fuentes is unacceptable. I urge you to throw those bumps out, disavow them, and relegate them to the dustbin of history where they belong. Republican leaders had already broken with, who had already broken with Trump also leaped into the fray. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, for example, has been the target of repeated attacks from Trump, including a racist jibe in October against McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, who served in his administration as Transportation Secretary. Last week, McConnell slapped back at the former president. There's no room in the Republican Party for anti-semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected President of the United States, McConnell told reporters at a Senate news conference. McConnell has little to lose. The midterm elections are over except for the Georgia Senate runoff, and regardless of how that election goes, Senate Republicans will remain the minority. That's largely Trump's responsibility, given the losses piled up by candidates he endorsed in key races. On top of that, McConnell isn't up for re-election until 2026, when he'll be 84. Other Senate Republicans, with uh, with a similar lack of concern about a primary challenge, readily denounced Trump. There's no bottom to the degree to which President Trump will degrade himself and the nation, said Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. Those with with more at risk showed far more reticence. MacArthur, for example, hasn't yet lined up the 218 votes in the House he needs to win election as Speaker. He's been courting right-wing Republicans, at least five of whom have vowed to vote against him. That has led him to embrace figures on the party's extreme edge, such as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, and has kept him in thrall to the former president. While well, speaking to reporters at the White House last week, after meeting with President Biden, McCarthy was willing to denounce Fuentes, saying that I don't think anyone, anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. I condemn his ideology. When asked how, about Trump, however, McCarthy first said that the former president had condemned Fuentes. When a reporter reminded them that Trump had done no such thing, McCarthy pivoted back to Trump's defense, saying that he didn't know who Fuentes was. Many of Trump's potential rivals for the nomination have been similarly circumspect. With the notable exception of former Vice President Mike Pence, who told an interviewer for the conservative network News Nation that President Trump was wrong to give a white nationalist an anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table, and I think he should apologize for it. Trump's leading prospective rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, by contrast, has maintained strict silence on the subject despite repeated inquiries from news organizations. The governor did find time to dive into other subjects, threatening to punish uh, Apple, for example, after Elon Musk suggested that the company might try to drop Twitter from its app store, an allegation that Musk soon abandoned. Here's the reality that ties the tongues of McCarthy, DeSantis, and the like. Roughly 3 in 10 Republican voters still identify as more a supporter of Donald Trump than of the GOP. That's down significantly from 2020, when a majority of Republicans identify more as supporters of Trump than of the party, according to a polling for NBC News, which has tracked that question. As recently as August, 4 in 10 Republicans say, they were more supportive. They were, they, were, they were more supportive supporters of Trump. But while loyalty to the former president has declined, three in ten remains a formidable block, especially in an era in which elections routinely turn on margins of fewer than two percentage points in key states. But side by side with that, reali- when, with that reality sits another one, which the recent midterm elections made clear. Republicans lost amid independent voters, something that almost never happened to the party out of power in a midterm contest. And Republican candidates endorsed by Trump routinely got fewer votes than those he did not endorse. Trump has become an electoral liability for his party, and the more they scuttle away from direct confrontations with him, the worse that liability becomes. Six years ago, After Trump won the Republican nomination, party leaders, with a few exceptions, decided they would overlook his bigoted statements, uh, flagrant falsehoods, and personal misconducts in order to maintain unity in the ranks. They upped that deal after the January 6, 2021 attacks on the Capitol, closing ranks to save Trump from conviction on impeachment charges and ostracizing outspoken critics such as Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Now, as always happens with such bargains, the bill Is coming due that was some Republicans quiet on anti-semitism at a cost by David Louder from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times Monday December 5th 2022 all right here's something from the business section of the Los Angeles Times Monday December December 5th 2022 Madoff lawyer to FTS exec shut up Ira Sorkin says Sam Bl- uh, blankman Freed should end his apology tour over crypto debacle by Ava Benny Morrison. The lawyer who represented Bernie Madoff has this advice for Sam blankman Freed: Shut up! Enough with this whole media apology tour, says Ira Sorkin, the lead defense lawyer for Madoff, late, uh, late mastermind of one of the greatest Ponzi schemes of all time. As authorities sift through... The wreckage of FTX, uh, Begman Freed's collapsed crypto empire, the man known as SBF has been talking to just about everyone, including the New York Times and ABC talk show Good Morning America. Again and again, he's denied intentionally co- uh, committing client, uh, co- uh, committing client money or trying to swindle anyone. Federal authorities are investigating exactly that. Neither FTX, Alameda Research, nor any of the former top executives involved have been accused of any wrongdoing by U.S. authorities. It was just a big screw-up, Bankman Friedman told Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, Sorkin said Bankman fried should listen to his lawyers and and immediately stop talking. Anyone who's watched Law & Order knows that. That's the first order of business. Don't talk, Sorkin said. You're not going to sway the public. The only people that are going to listen to what you have to say are regulators and prosecutors. Bankman Freed conceded last week that the publicity blitz flew in the face of legal advice but said he had a duty to explain what happened. Before an hour-long interview with the New York Times' Deal Book on Wednesday and a Good Morning America segment on Thursday, he agreed to a video interview with Axios and a Twitter conversation published by Vox. Sometimes clients believe they are smarter than their lawyers. This guy is 39 year, this guy is 30 years old and he is not smarter than his lawyers, Sorkin said. They should be telling him every five minutes to shut up, but sometimes clients don't listen. Representatives for Bankman-Fried and FTX didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. Bankman-Fried, the son of law professors, has said he's speaking against his lawyer's advice. On Friday, FTX sought to clarify that Bankman-Fried does not speak on its behalf. Legal experts have said he may simply be testing out an it was a, a la big mistake defense. Renato Mariotti, a former federal prosecutor, said investigators are surely taking note. Anything Bankman Friedman says could be used against him in court, he said. Uh, Here's a man who appears to be responsible for many people losing their life savings, said Mariotti, a lawyer at the firm Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. How can someone make that worse? Lock himself into not only one, but he... Lock himself not into not only one but various versions of a story," Mariotti said, adding that he expects to see some of these interviews played in court. Bankman-Fried's uh, uh, apparent willingness to keep talking was welcomed by a prominent figure in Washington on Friday, Representative Maxine Waters of Democrat of Los Angeles. She's asking Bankman-Fried to appear before the House Financial Services Committee on December 13th. We appreciate that you've been candidate in your discussions about what happened at ftx waters tweeted that was Mata Florida to ftx exec shut up by ava ava benny morrison from the business section of the los angeles times monday december 5th 2022 benny morrison writes for bloomberg we've actually got a few sports stories here so let's start with this one from the World Cup section of the Los Angeles Times Sports section, Tuesday, December 6, 2022, Yedlin says U.S. team has built a foundation. By Kevin Baxter. DeAndre Yedlin was the only member of the U.S. roster who came to Qatar having played in a World Cup. He was also one of just two who started in, in the loss to Trinidad and Tobago that kept the United States out of the tournament four years ago. So Yedlin, perhaps perhaps more than anyone, was best positioned to talk about the progress the team has made in the last four years. And his conclusion is, this this U.S. squad is a special group, despite Saturday's 3-1 loss to the Netherlands that knocked the Americans out of the tournament in the round of 16. This team has given a lot of people hope. People see the talent on this team, and they get excited, Yedlin said. As a group, we built a culture. We built a foundation. It's very cohesive. Yedlin credited coach Greg uh, Berhalter and his staff for much of that. The hardest thing as a coach is to get everybody going in the same direction. I think he's done that very well, Yedlin said. We are always positive. We are always looking forward. Despite that, this team, the youngest U.S. uh, World Cup squad in a generation, didn't get further than the, last in, than the last two American teams in the World Cup. But Yedlin said that's part of the journey. The biggest thing is the group learned what it feels like to lose in a World Cup, he said. Now they know that feeling of what it's like to lose after putting so much into it. That can only fuel success. While Yedlin, 29, was looking forward, defender Tim Reem 35, was looking back. For Reem, the experience in Qatar was career-defining. The oldest player on the U.S. team hadn't been called up for 14 months and had, been given, and had given up on the World Cup before injuries opened a roster spot. He wound up playing every minute in the tournament. I've tried to convey to the guys that you never guaranteed anything in this game, he said. I think it's something that's important, not taking anything for granted. As for what comes next, the United States opens its first training camp of the new World Cup cycle in six weeks and have friendlies against Serbia at Bank of California Stadium and Colombia at Dignity Health Sports Park. Who will be in charge of that camp and those games is unknown. Berhalter's contract expires this month, and neither the coach nor U.S. soccer has indicated how negotiations are going. But as whether he believes the team has made progress over the last four years And over the last three weeks in Qatar, the coach was unequivocal. I do feel we've made progress, he said. Now it's about how do we keep that up and take it to another level. That was Yevon says U.S. team has built a foundation by Kevin Baxter from the World Cup section of the Los Angeles Times Sports section Tuesday, December 6, 2022. Here's a little something from the Sports section of the Los Angeles Times Friday, December 9, 2022. House Snyder had a role in toxic culture, from staff and wire reports. The Washington commanders created a toxic work culture for more than two decades, ignoring and downplaying sexual misconduct and what former female employees described as hundreds of instances of sexual harassment by men at the top levels of the organization, according to a report published Thursday by the House Oversight Committee on Oversight and Reform. The misconduct included Commander's owner Dan Snyder, who was accused of inappropriate touching, a former employee said at a dinner, having staffers produce a video of sexually suggestive footage of cheerleaders and ordering that women auditioning to be cheerleaders walk on the field while he and his friends gawked from his suite through binoculars, the report said. The House committee opened its investigation in October 2021 after the NFL did not release a written report of its review of the team's workplace culture. The league's independent review by attorney Beth Wilkinson was completed in summer 2021 and resulted in a $10 million fine to the team. The House report said uh, Snyder interfered in its investigation of Wilkinson's review, which stemmed from former employees alleging rampant sexual harassment by team executives. The team owner interfered with the House committee's investigation by intimidating witnesses, refusing to release former employees from their confidentiality obligations, and using a secret agreement with the NFL to block access to more than 40,000 documents, according to the report. That was House. Snyder had a role in toxic culture from staff and wire reports out of the sports section of the Los Angeles Times Friday, December 9, 2022. All right, and here's something from the Los Angeles Times sports section Friday, December 9, 2022, Dodgers quiet approach is explained. Friedman discusses why team didn't, at least not yet, make a splashy signing by Jack Harris. San Diego. Since taking over the Dodgers front office nearly a decade ago, Andrew Friedman has tried to strike a carefully balanced while constructing a careful balance while instruct, constructing the club's roster. Maximize the team's chances of winning the World Series in each new season while maintaining its ability to remain a contender in the years to come. Call it the doctrine of sustained success, the belief that championship windows don't have to swing from completely open to all the way closed, but can rather be pried open permanently through shrewd top-to-bottom organizational execution. We've seen a lot of large market teams compete over a short period of time and then fall off a cliff, Friedman said during the week's annual winter meetings in San Diego, where his calculated philosophies were under the microscope again. While many teams indulged in a nearly unprecedented spending spree, the Dodgers stuck to their principles and kept a tight grip on their purse strings. They engaged in negotiations with several big-name players but didn't splurge in an inflated market that has already seen more than $2 billion of guaranteed money doled out. It's not that the Dodgers couldn't use another splashy signing with an experienced starting pitcher, a defensively capable center fielder, and a potential new shortstop on their offseason wish list. It's not as if they lacked the financial capital for a blockbuster move with their current luxury tax payroll. At around 189 million dollars almost a hundred million dollars less than last season and still well below the league's 233 million dollar luxury tax threshold instead the dodgers evaluated the market talked to agents and deemed the going rate for many players surpassed uh, what they felt was a responsible manageable sustainable amount then came, they came close to signing justin verlander and insists they won't hesitate to swing a big deal later this winter for either a free agent or trade target if the right opportunity emerges. But in a winter of rollicking and what some might argue reckless spending, the Dodgers are hoping their restraint will ultimately help them conquer the sport again. The one thing that's constant, Friedman said, of the team's approach is putting ourselves in the best position to win a championship while also keeping that window open as far as we can see out. Such messaging harkens back to Friedman's early years running one of baseball's most storied teams when he was tasked with revamping a club saddled with a bloated payroll and sputtering farm system. As the team's payroll uh, decreased every uh, every season from 2015 to 2018, its ability to Uh, Instead, develop prospects and nurture big league talent helped cement the foundation of a new-look contender. The Dodgers didn't always sign top-of-the-line free agents. But it hardly halted their transformation into one of the sport's most consistent regular season winners. The postseason was a different story, with the Dodgers' annual shortcomings in the fall increasingly blamed on their unambitious moves the previous winter. That finally changed in 2020 when Mookie Betts' arrival preceded a long-sought World Series championship and became the first in a string of high-profile roster moves. In 2021, they signed Trevor Bauer, then traded Trey for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer at that season's trade deadline. Last spring, they shocked the league again by uh, luring Freddie Freeman after his departure from the Atlanta Braves. In hindsight this week, Friedman argued those moves, which helped escalate the club's payroll past the league uh, luxury tax threshold and at more than $280 million last season to club record heights, were essentially the Dodgers' efforts at going all in. They tried jarring the window open a little bit more, hoping it wouldn't suddenly slam shut. The only problem? The Dodgers failed to bring another title or even National League pennant to Los Angeles. Entering this offseason, all of of it left them at an awkward crossroads, keeping spending really, really big or try to recalibrate back at more sustainable levels. To this point, the Dodgers are opting for the latter. They've uh, shed payroll and positioned themselves to reset their luxury tax penalties. They've held on to a new wave of prospects now knocking on their door of the big league roster. It's not a strategy that comes without risk. Though their 2023 team is probably already playoff caliber, at the start of the offseason, uh, Fan FanGraphs' zip projection, projection still predicted the Dodgers to be a 91-win first-place team. The league's other title contenders have made more high-profile improvements during this week's flurry of free agent activity. The team will certainly bolster the roster before open, opening day but probably not with superstar additions, barring a change of heart toward shortstop Carlos Correa, whom they've intrigued but not expected to pursue given his involvement in the Houston Astros' 2017 uh, sign-stealing scandal. Or a sudden collapse in a pitching market now headlined by Carlos Rodon and Kodai Senga, who have received interest from the Dodgers but will probably earn offers beyond the team's preferred price range. Freeman defended the Dodgers' approach this week, pushing back against the notion that the team could be ben- could could benefit from another all-in approach. This is just not the sport where that reward is the same as in other sports, he said. The sustained success part comes, and we've seen over the last seven eight years by injecting young, talented players into the mix. Given their conservative approach this week, the Dodgers clearly believe they don't have to keep spending at levels even if their if deep-pocketed ownership group might be unwilling to stomach. That was Dodgers' Quiet Approach as Explained by Jack Harris from the Sports Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 9, 2022. Okay, let's turn to some entertainment news and a movie review from the Calendar Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 5, 2022. Activist Art Rage and Action in Vibrant Focus. A new documentary shows Nan Golden's Fight to Hold Sackler Family Accountable by Robert Abel. When life wounds, art and fellowship can heal, or at the very least, categorize into the most expressive of scars. Photographer Nan Golden knows this as much as anyone, her life's journey from suburban captivity to outsider freedom. from uh, from Polaroid chronicler of her circle of intimate to consequential artist-activist is all on moving, enriching display in Oscar-winning filmmaker Laura Portraz's enthralling documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. If you've ever doubted how art rage or action can make meaningful change, Golden's combination of all three fighting an opioid crisis that nearly killed her is exhilarating proof of the power of screaming in the streets, to borrow what the queer artist David of one of many close friends of Golden's whom the AIDS epidemic took, rightly described as a necessary ritual of the living in a time of too much death. When Golden In recovery from her own scary OxyContin addiction, learned that the wealthy Stackler family, owner of the drug maker of Purdue Pharma, were all over her world as art benefactors. She created Pain Prescription Addiction Intervention Now as an ACT UP inspired group aimed at advocating for more treatment funding for opioid profits from opiate profits, and shaming museums bearing the Sackler name into refusing the family's reputation-washing money. Started in starting in 2018, she spearheaded die-ins inside the Met and the Guggenheim with flung peel bottles, coruscating banners, 400,000 dead shouts, Sackler live people die, and arrayed bodies signifying the drug's deathly toll. The footage of these actions, the verite center of Poultras's biographical portray, portrait of Golden, has a fierce glory planned eruptions in elite spaces that, as we learn from the story, threatened artfully throughout the documentary, speak to how important truth, community, and unfettered expression have, be, have been across Golden's life. Her spare vivid candid voiceover guides us through her birth as an artist which begins in a home wrapped by secrets and tragedy surrounding the suicide of her older sister Barbara, a figure whose rebellious streak is a stifling middle-class existence uh, becomes a guiding force for the younger Shire Golden as she navigates ad- adulthood. Finding a new family among the gener- gender non-conforming and created she turned her treasured relationships into a marginalized community into the stuff of a deeply personal snaps that in the art world counts as a subversive, soulful, and destigmatizing photographic truth. Golden's descriptions of Bowery's scrappiness, nocturnal multitasking, and underground socializing bring that street-romantic bohemia alive as references remembrances of friends such as actress-writer Cookie Mueller wears her documentary, the political awakening from her time bartending for Tin, Tin Pan Alley owner Maggie Smith, and in the late 80s, curating the controversial multidisciplinary AIDS-themed gallery show Witnesses. Portress, uh, whose Poultris, whose gift for suspenseful contempt- contemplation is on full display here, layers her subject's frank memories and insights over a rolling bounty of her photo- photographs. The evokes Golden's legendary sideshows, the most famous of which is the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which is exerted. We even hear a shudder, click occasionally, too, a sonic touch that gently reinforces the intimacy of our watching and listening while the sparsely deployed soundwalk collective score and other music cues feel like an ethereal bridge between McGolden's past epiphanies and present crusade. That interweaving of the woman she was and is eventually arrives at a beautiful hard-won catharsis when Payne's efforts get desired results from the art world and it feels as though we're seeing the personal, the professional, and the political, in Golden's life achieve achieve a radical harmony. Late in All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, a title whose origin, when revealed, carries unbearable poignancy, there's a scene in which Golden takes part in a Zoom hearing that requires the Sacklers looking for a settlement to hear and view in real time the testimony of OxyContin addiction victims. When Golden's turn comes, the camera captures a pain colleague supportively uh, gripping this dedicated artist activist's trembling hand. It feels like a moment she would want for her collection of cherished memories, a spontaneous image of pain, perseverance, righteous uh, expression, and the tender gesture that says, I'm with you. That's Activist Art Rage and Action in Vibrant Focus by Robert Abel. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, December 5th, 2022. It's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Not Rated, Running Time, 1 hour 57 minutes, playing at the AMC Sunset 5 in West Hollywood. Now we're going to read some articles from the LA Jewish Home for November 17th through the 30th, 2022, volume one, number four. And uh, this is called Torah Thought, Parshas Toldos, Grabbing Mitzvahs, by Rabbi Shemuel Kamenetsky, Parshas Toldos tells the story of the birth of Yaakov and Aesop. The Torah's description of their birth is unique. The Pasuk tells us that when Yaakov was born, Fiyadu Oheses Ba'akiv Aesop and his hand was grasping onto the heel of Aesop. The Torah describes this phenomenon of Yaakov grasping Aesop's heel as they are first arriving on this world. What is its significance? In the early 1800s, two yeshiva students traveled together across Europe to Pressburg, Hungary, to the yeshiva of Rav Moshe Sofer, known as the Hasem Sofer, in a world-renowned Torah institution. A world-renowned Torah institution. One boy uh, was known for his brilliant mind and quick grasp of his studies, and his reputation preceded him where, uh, whenever he went, wherever he went. The other was also studious, and a budding scholar, but none of the same stature as the first. It was only a few days after Sukkos, and they are, and they arrived in time to take the entrance exam for the long winter Zaman semester. Both boys spent time individually with the Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Moshi Sofer, as he thoroughly tested the boys on their knowledge of Gemara and its many commentaries. Later, the faculty and students of the Yeshiva were shocked to hear that the Hassam Sofer accepted the second boy into his prestigious yeshiva, but not the first. One rabbi in the yeshiva approached him and asked him why. As these two boys walked towards the yeshiva, the Hassam Sofer explained, I watched them through a window in my study. There was some loose sock left from sukkahs lying on the side of the road. The first boy carelessly stepped on the chesach and tramped the chesach and tramped it as he walked a straight path. The second boy, however, out of sensitivity for the mitzvah, took a slight detour and walked around the chesach. Sh- a Talmud who was missing the sensitivity for a mitzvah, no matter how bright he is, will not fit in this yeshiva. My grandfather, Rav Benjamin Kamanetsky Stittle quoted the of Barbanal to shed light on this incident, yesaph held some ideas close to his heart and pursued them greatly. Physical strength and mastery, as h- at hunting, were his passions, and he pursued them along with the three cardinal sins: idolatry, adultery, and murder. Yet service of Hashem and spiritual pursuit were crushed under his heel. Tabasuk in Par- Parashat Eikev uses this expressive. This expression described one who does not have the proper regard for mitzvahs. This is precisely where Yaakov centered. When Yaakov saw a mitzvah, or an opportunity to grow, he grabbed it. As he emerged from Rivka's womb, he was already grabbing those opportunities which Asaph left behind. He grabbed the heel to show that every small opportunity for growth, even the ones crushed under the heel of the scoffers, is important. This is, the second, uh, this is the secret to spiritual growth. While others may take a shortcut and trample on the mitzvah, don't follow. Take another moment to fully understand the gift of a mitzvah. Grab it and grow. That was Parsha's Toldos, Grabbing Mi- uh, mitzvah, Mitzvahs by Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky from the Torah Thought section. Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky is the Director of Advancement at Yeshiva of South Shore, is Shiva uh, Torah's Haim Beis Benyamin. Benjamin. He is currently compiling the Torah thoughts from his grandfather Rav Benjamin Kamensky's sittel into uh, into print in Hebrew and English. If you have any stories or Devar Torah to share from his uh, from his grandfather's, or to subscribe to receive a weekly Devar Torah from Rav Benjamin Kamensky's teachings. You can email him at uh, shaminsky Shem, at org All right, this is from a section called Lou's Views, and this is called It May Be the End of the Line for Affirmative Action by Lou Shapiro. The drama continues. On October 31st 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court revisited the controversial issue of affirmative action. Affirmative action involves sets of policies and practices within a government or organization seeking to include particular groups based on their gender, race, sexuality, creed, or nationality in areas which such groups are underrepresented. Supporters of affirmative action argue that it promotes equality and representation for socioeconomically disadvantaged groups or those that have experienced discrimination or oppression. Opponents of it argue that it is a form of reverse discrimination that results in excluding those who have earned their right to be in a particular group. The first time the U.S. Supreme Court addressed affirmative action was in 1978 in Regents of the University of California v. Bakke. Bakke involved a dispute of whether preferential treatment for minorities could reduce educational opportunities for whites without violating the Constitution. The court ruled that specific racial quotas, such as the 16 out of 100 seats that were set aside for minority students by the University of California, Davis School of Medi- and Medicine, were impermissible. The court did allow race to be one of several factors in college admission policy. Justice Powell wrote that under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution, the government may not deny people equal protection of its governing laws. When the government uh, treats members of races differently, it needs to show a compelling interest to justify it, which is a very high standard. bakey became known as America's best-known freshman who went on to practice medicine as an anesthesiologist at the Mayo Clinic. It wasn't until 2003 that the U.S. Supreme Court would once again hear affirma- uh, address affirmative action and Grutter v. Bollinger, the court held that a student admissions process that favored underrepresentative minority groups did not violate the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause so long as it looked in, look into account other factors evaluated on an individual basis for every applicant. Barbara Grutter, Grutter alleged that the University of Michigan Law School denied her admission because the school gave certain minority groups a significant greater chance of admission. The school admitted that its admissions process favored certain minority groups, but argued that there was a compelling a compelling state interest to ensure a critical mass of students from minority groups. In ruling for the university, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, wrote for the majority and stated that the Constitution does not prohibit the law school's narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions to further a compelling interest in obtaining the education benefits that flow from a diverse student body. Justice O'Connor did, however, write that the race-conscious admissions policy must be limited in time and stated that the court expects that 25 years from now the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interests approved today that brings to us that brings us to, to the two affirmative action cases in the US Supreme Court uh will be rendering a decision on in the next few months student for fair admissions incorporated v president and fellows of harvard college and students for fair admissions inc v university of north carolina in the harvard case the plaintiffs allege that Harvard violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which bars entities that receive federal funding from discriminating discriminating based on race because Asian American applicants are less likely to be admitted than similarly qualified white, black, or Hispanic applicants. The University of North Carolina, the group argues, violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which bars racial discrimination, by government entities by considering race in its admissions process when the university does not need to do so to achieve a diverse student body. To give you an idea of how contentious this issue is, nearly a hundred amicus briefs were filed. 13, uh, 33, Thirty-three briefs were in support of the plaintiffs, and sixty were filed in favor of the universities. When oral arguments were heard by the court, six of the conservative justices made statements that indicated that they are going to rule that universities are to no longer take race into account in order to achieve diversity. They are basing basing it on the 25-year expiration date from Grutter, even though it's only been 19 years, and the fact that they feel that there there exist more race-neutral alternatives to creating a diverse class. Interestingly, a recent Pew Research poll found that more Americans said that high school grades and standardized test scores should matter in the admissions process than other factors. More than 9 in 10 Americans, 93%, said high school grades should be at least a minor factor in admissions decisions, including 61% who said they should be a major factor. This was followed by standardized test scores, 39% major factor, 46% minor factor, and community service involvement. 19% 19% major, 48% minor. By comparison, nearly three-quarters of Americans or more, or more said gender, race, or <clears throat> ethnicity, or whether a relative attended the school should not factor into admissions decisions. In 1996, California voters passed Proposition 209, which barred affirmative action. UC President Michael V. Drake and all 10 chancellors submitted an amicus brief in support of Harvard and UNC's affirmative action policies. Calling UC a laboratory for experimentation on using race-neutral measures to promote diversity, the university leaders said that decades of outreach programs to low-income students and recrafted admissions policies have fallen short. They argue that their hands have been tied by Proposition 209 and it has resulted in a lack of diversity in the classroom. On November 4, 2022, the Los Angeles Times ran an article titled, Are Asian American College Applicants at a Disadvantage? Supreme Court Debate Stirs Fear. The piece provides the perspective of Asian American students who find college admissions to be difficult and unfair in its current situation. Tony Fenn A candidate for the Alhambra Unified School District Board provided examples of the great lengths that some Asian-Americans take to improve their chances of receiving that coveted acceptance letter. He said that families are moving to locales with fewer Asians in the hopes that they can better compete and that some parents are renaming their children to mask their Asian identities. He also stated that some college counselors who cater to Asian clients often advise applicants to stay away from stereotypical activities, such as violin and math club, and instead look for activities that showcase originality. The court is expected to release its written decision on these two cases at January 2023. The decision will have far more reaching consequences than the college-university admissions process. If the court rules for the universities and extinguishes affirmative action, it will trigger strong condemnation from groups that support the rights of minorities. It will be accused of being not only misogynistic, Dobbs versus Jackson, where the Supreme Court overturned a woman's constitutional right to abortion, but racist too. It seems like there is no end in sight to controversial decisions, issues, or elections that continue to divide the country. There was a time when both sides, for the most part, would be able to respectfully and collegially accept the outcomes that they may have, that they may not have desired because they answered to a higher calling of civility. The reaction to this anticipated ruling would be a great opportunity for the nation to show that it can still return to its strong unified front. I'm afraid, though, that we still have a ways to go. That was it may be the end of the line for affirmative action by Lou Shapiro, from the Lose Views section. Lou Shapiro is a criminal defense attorney, certified specialist, and legal analyst. But most importantly, makes the end of shul announcement at Adas Torah. He can be reached at lewisjshapiro at gmail.com. Here's something from a column called the Apex Climb. Being Present in Your Present by Rabbi Daniel Grama. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb needs to want to change. Change isn't easy, yet it is one of the most essential ingredients to a robust, happy life. So how do we motivate the proverbial light bulb to want to change? Hashem Melech, Hashem Malach, Hashem Yimlach, the Olam Vaed. Hashem is King. Hashem was King. Hashem will reign as King for eternity. This refrain, a phrase popularized by a hit song, should be quite familiar to us. We say it daily in our morning prayers, and it is prominent during our Yomim Noraim Tefilos. We would like to make two stunning observations. First, while the overwhelming amount of Pesukei Dezimera is comprised of pasukim from Tanakh, this pasuk is nowhere to be found. There isn't any singular pasuk that states the these three tenses of Hashem's existence. In fact, this important proclamation is an uh, amalgamation of three individual verses spread amongst the Tanakh. Second, we notice a chronological anomaly. Rather than follow the appropriate order of tense, past, present, and future, the statement opens with the present tense, Hashem is king, and only then proceeds with the past and future tense. We believe that this uniquely formatted pronouncement expresses our personal and present cognizance of Hashem's greatness. This means, rather than abstractly speaking of Hashem and how great He is, we are focusing on the moment, the present if you will, of our personal relationship and connection to Him. Instead of making Hashem the subject of the phrase, we are the focal point. A mindful awareness of our present relationship with our Creator subsequently enables us to reflect on how He impacted our life in the past and how we envision our future ongoing relationship with Him. Understanding this principle empowers us in our personal lives as well. Our life experiences have been molded to us uh, to be who we are today. And who we are today will form the trajectory of who we will be tomorrow interestingly while we may believe that we are living in the present by being fully functional with our jobs families etc the reality is that we are often caught up in the other phases of our lives some are bogged down by a challenging past while others may be fixated on the future either way doing so distracts us from our present state of being Ruminating about the negative effects of our past causes us to avoid dealing with our issues of the present. Similarly, obsessing over the future inhibits us from developing and improving our present state, which is actually the core foundation for a better future. In the world of therapy, there are a plethora of therapeutic modalities, but their their common denominator is to raise an awareness of of one's present life. To notice one's strengths and weaknesses, triggers and coping mechanisms. I had a client who was generally a very easygoing natured person until she wasn't. I realized that the key issue, uh, which uh, which prevented her healing, was her lack of awareness of her present state of anger that she would have. I'm not upset, she would say. I just don't like. True, our session our sessions helped her notice the roots of unhealthiness from her past. Yet only once she acknowledged her states of anger in the present uh, was she motivated to change. Another practical application of this idea is in regards to our parenting skills. When a parent educates their ch- their child with the mantra of "When I was a kid," the parent may be giving the message that they are living in their own past instead of living together with the child in their present. Similarly. If a child primarily hears phrases such as, wait till you grow up, or, and what about your future, they may be hearing an inability of a parent in dealing with the child's current situation. However, parents who stay in the present while drawing on experiences of their past and utilizing goal planning for the future Im- Im- imbibe their child with a healthy sense of self of, and motivation to grow. To sum it up, while our past and future are strongest allies of growth, true motivation for change is found in the person who lives in the present. That was Being Present in Your Present by Rabbi Daniel Grama from the Apex Climb. Rabbi Grama has been involved in the L.A. Jewish community since 1996. He is currently the rabbi at Valley Torah High School and is the rabbi of the West Side Shul. As well, he holds an MSW from YU's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Rabbi Gramma can be found every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time on Hashtag Torah Tuesday on Instagram Live for a brief Torah thought on the Parsha and can be reached at Daniel, Grama, Daniel Grama S W at gmail.com. All right, here's a couple of stories from a section called Happenings in the Hood with TMZV plus the Doc. This is called Finally a Real Deli Sandwich, Schwartz Barbecue and the Deli by ratner Ratnerstaber and Stephen Kupferman. Koop, when we heard the news that LA was finally opening up a glad kosher delicatessen, we, look, we, we could look no further for our inaugural piece of the LA Jewish home. For years, the LA glad kosher deli landscape was dominated by pico-kosher deli. Since its closing in 2020 a made-to-order glad kosher deli sandwich has been elusive many have tried and many have failed enter schwartz barbecue and deli operated by moshe hecht of schwartz bakery initial uh, concerns of a deli started by a bakery owner and a danish lover were quickly alleviated the location is poetically right next to the ogpkd and it almost surreal it seemed we walked up to the restaurant and found the few sole bar seats uh, inside occupied by twin Larry David lookalikes, providing early credibility to the new eatery. Beli- Be- Before we approached the deli counter, a new age self-service point-of-care touchscreen greeted us to take our order. We went with some classics: pastrami sandwich and challah. We know it's a shanda not to go with rye. A brisket sandwich, cob salad, matzo ball soup, and, of course, Dr. Brun's black cherry soda. They offer sides with all sandwiches, baked beans, mashed potatoes, or veggies. The staff brought the food out quite quickly to our outdoor seats on the boulevard beneath the beautiful Crips Sun LA Sunday evening sky. The vibe is a work in progress. A couple of basic seats and tables on the on the ultra-luxurious Pico Boulevard passers-by are either going to walk in and place an order or steal your sandwich the sounds of omar adam blasting from lenny's casita across the way is a nice touch but fear not moshi had told us that they are expanding next door and it will have proper seating in due time the sandwiches were cut in half we simultaneously took first bites and realized schwartz was on their, was on their game the bread was soft and perfectly baked The meats were smoked and pickled to perfection in-house. The pastrami was possibly the best we ever had. Warm, fatty, thinly sliced. Once we realized how good the food prep was, we ordered a few specialty sandwiches. The chicken zinger, the southwestern pastrami zinger, and our overall favorite, the fishman, named for Danny Fishman for his years of loyalty. The fishman is marketed as a succulent smoked beef And a special homemade sauce with sauteed mushrooms and onions and it was every bit of that and more and the food coma set in we turned to the gentleman sitting alone at the only other outdoor table and asked him what his thoughts were he noted that this was the first reuben sandwich he had ever had without cheese and he was notably impressed and planned to return Schwartz Barbecue and Deli is a welcomed addition in the pico, to the pico uh, restaurant scene. Overall, we found a gem that we intend to return to and try, and try to the many other items on the menu. For now, we consider it a breath of fresh air for the return of a glad kosher deli. But most important, the much-needed perfect deli sandwich to sneak into your next ball game. It was finally A Real Deli Sandwich, Schwartz Barbecue and Deli, by Zivi Ratner-Staber and Stiebe Kupferman. From the Happenings in the Hood with TM Zivi and the Dock. Happenings in the Hood with TM Zivi and the Dock is a new review column of local Jewish and kosher establishments. Zivi Ratner-Staber Staber is a mortgage broker in L.A. and Stiebe Kupferman is an oral and Mozilla maxillofacial surgeon in Century City. Alright, and now, let's start reading from jewishjournal.com and uh, we start off with this one. Nike cuts ties with Kyrie Irving following anti-Semitism controversy. At Nike, we believe there is no place for hate speech and we condemn any form of anti-Semitism. To that end, we've made the decision to suspend our relationship with Kyrie Irving effective immediately and will no longer launch the Kyrie 8 shoe brand. By Aaron Bandler, December 6, 2022 Nike has officially ended their partnership with Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving on December 5th after the point guard posted a link to an anti-Semitic film on Amazon. The Athletics' Sham, Shams uh, Charania was the first to report on the development on Twitter signing a Nike, news, uh, signing a Nike spokesperson. Nike has suspended their relationship with Irving on November 4th, saying in a statement at the time, At Nike, we believe there is no place for hate speech and we condemn any form of anti-Semitism. To that end, we've made the decision to suspend our relationship with Kyrie Irving effective immediately and will no longer launch the Kyrie 8 shoe brand. The Kyrie 8 had been scheduled to become available in November. uh, Irving's agent and stepmother, Stelia Riley Irving said in a statement that it was a mutual decision for Irving and Nike to go their separate ways. Following the athletics report, Irving tweeted a gift that said, "There's nothing more priceless than being free. A couple of hours later, he tweeted, "Anyone who has even spent their hard-earned money on anything I have ever released, I consider you family and we are forever connected. It's time to show how powerful we are as a community. The movie in question, Hebrews to Negroes Wake Up America promotes claims that modern, that modern Jews are imposters who stole religious heritage of black people as well as claims of a global Jewish conspiracy to oppress and defraud black people, among other anti-Semitic tropes, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Irving was suspended for several NBA games and eventually apologized for sharing a link to the film. That was Nike, Nike cuts, anti, cuts Ties with Kyrie Irving Following Anti-Semitism Controversy by Aaron Bandler December 6, 2022. All right, this next one is called Coalition Sends a Letter to Elon Musk Urging Twitter to Adopt International Anti-Semitism Definition by Benjamin Raziel December 6, 2022. A global coalition of 180-plus civil rights organizations has published an open letter calling on Twitter CEO Elon Musk to adopt an internationally agreed-upon definition of antisemitism that could be used to flag and remove content promoting hate from the platform. The letter asks Musk to incorporate into Twitter's content guidelines the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which is widely used as an international standard for identifying anti-Semitic language, acts, and violence. The definition covers various types of antisemitism, including justifying the killing of Jews in the name of radical ideology, Holocaust denial, and denying the Jewish people right to to, uh, self-determination in Israel. It has been adopted by more than 40 countries, including the United States, and is used by hundreds of educational institutions, government entities, and international organizations. Upon acquiring Twitter, Musk announced the formation of a Content Moderation Council to advise the company on issues related to content monitoring and account reinstatement. What this spells for anti-Semitic content is not entirely clear. Musk has said that Twitter will only take down tweets that violate U.S. law, a policy that, according to the open letter signees, may be less effective in curbing the spread of hateful content than adopting the IHRA's anti-Semitism definition. To maximize the probability that the future is good, the world needs an online platform where everyone can participate, the letter read. Unfortunately, this is not the case, as Jewish users are subject to unrelenting harassment on Twitter. Tal or Cohen's company, CyberWell, uncovered more than a thousand examples of tweets that violate the IHRA's working definition of anti-Semitism. Many of these tweets, which include language denying or downplaying the Holocaust and aspersions about Jewish people in entertainment, were enclosed within the letter to Musk. Data must be the cornerstone of our fight against online anti-Semitism, said Cohen. In the face of skyrocketing digital Jew hatred, social media platforms should take meaningful actions and integrate the IHRA definition into their community standards. Musk's acquisition of Twitter... a landmark 44 billion dollar transaction in october has sent shockwaves across the global social media ecosystem and raised questions about whether musk a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist will take action against hateful speech disinformation and bot accounts mass layoffs and resignations at twitter have dominated the past month eliminating more than half of the platform's workforce and casting further doubt on whether it will be able to effectively counter misinformation and hate Still, some of the letter signes say, this moment could be an opportunity to address the problems that have allowed anti-Semitism to spread on the site. Sadly, the Jewish people are not strangers to hate. It is likely that people will die if hate speech found on Twitter is allowed to flourish, said Archie Gottesman, co-founder of Belong, a nonprofit that fights anti-Semitism. We urge Mr. Musk and Twitter to do the right thing and adopt IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism, You will literally save lives. That was Coalition Sends Letter to Elon Musk Urging Twitter to Adopt International Anti-Semitism Definition by Benjamin Raziel for December 6, 2022. This next one is called New York Anti-Semitic Crimes Spiked by 125% by Aaron Bandler December 7, 2022 anti-semitic hate crimes in new york city spiked by 125 percent in november 2022 compared to november 2021 uh, according to new data from the new york police department the times of israel reported that there were 45 anti-semitic hate crimes in new york city in november 2022 compared to 20 in november 2021. the figure accounted for 60 percent of all hate crimes that month the second highest group targeted with hate crimes were lgbt At 9 and blacks at 6. The data also showed 195 anti Semitic incidents occurred in New York City from January 1st to September 30th in 2022. Shocking but not surprising, and even more troubling in light of anti Semitism being amplified on celebrities' platforms, Anti Defamation League New York, New Jersey tweeted This must end. The Simon Weisenthal Center similarly tweeted that the numbers showed a staggering surge in anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York City. The Jewish group called on the city to step up the fight against history's oldest hate and ensure the safety of the U.S. city with the the highest number of Jewish standards. Jewish on Campus tweeted, Rhetoric has real-world consequences. Will you stand with us, Jewish community? Former New York State Democratic Assemblyman Dove Hykend, who also runs Americans Against Anti-Semitism, at New York City Mayor Eric Adams in a tweet what his plan is to combat anti- anti-Semitism in the city. Wishful thinking is not a plan, Heikind wrote. And that was New York anti-Semitic crimes spiked by 125% by Aaron Bandler for December 7, 2022. Here's another one. LA Sephardic Temple Vandalized by Aaron Bandler, September 7, 2022. Sephardic Temple Tifereth Israel was vandalized on November 26. Stop Anti-Semitism tweeted on December 6 that security footage captured a man throwing a large rock through an entrance window, shattering it. The man then continued to bang on the glass, shockingly recording himself the entire time. The synagogue's president, Raymond Yashawafar, issued a statement saying that the synagogue has reported the matter to the police as well as the Anti-Defamation League and the Jewish Federation. This is a reminder that anti-Semitism is real and is literally happening at our footsteps, Yes Shafar said. It is deeply disturbing that we are still experiencing such hate crimes in 2022. We will not stand silent and we will not allow anyone or anything to bring us down. Our temple has stood strong for the past 102 years, and we assure you that we will continue to thrive for many years to come. We are aware of and horrified by the vandalism perpetrated at the Sephardic Temple Tifereth Israel, on November 26, ADL Los Angeles Regional Director Jeffrey I. Abrams said in a statement to the journal. ADL Los Angeles has been in contact with the synagogue and provided our safety and security resources. Additionally, We have been in direct contact with the Los Angeles Police Department, and we appreciate that they are looking into the possibility of this being a hate crime. As always, we stand against anti-Semitism and any criminal acts directed at synagogues by the Ashkenazi, Sephardic, or any other houses of worship. American Jewish Committee Los Angeles regional director Richard S. Hershaft similarly said in a statement to the journal, "Any act of anti-Semitic vandalism is one incident too many. The reported vandalism of Sephardic Temple Tifereth Israel in broad daylight on the Shabbat of Thanksgiving weekend was a brazen act of hate." With anti-Semitic rhetoric flooded, flooding social media at unprecedented levels, it is difficult not to wonder whether this crime was fueled by such unrelenting streams of hate. That the alleged perpetrator recorded himself in the act suggests as much. Hopefully, it will speed his arrest and prosecution. That was L.A. Sephardic Temple Vandalized by Aaron Bandler for December 7, 2022. Okay, here is something else. Tom Tugend, war veteran and lifelong Jewish uh, journalist, has died at 97. By Susan Frudenheim, December 8, 2022. Tom Tugin, a dogged and prolific journalist who fought in three wars, then focused on writing the news of the Jewish world until his last days, died Wednesday at his home in Sherman Oaks. He was 97. Born in Berlin in 1925. As a boy, Tugin witnessed Hitler marching in a parade in the streets of his hometown just days before Tugin's family escaped to America in 1939. He would go on to serve in the United States Army and in France during World War II. As a squad leader in an Anglo-Saxon anti-tank unit during Israel's War of Independence and, after that, was drafted to serve in the Korean War but spent his stint in San Francisco editing a newsletter for the Army Medical Center. Susan honed his journalism skills as a soldier and those skills as well as his perpetual curiosity about the world and his gift with words kept him writing for more than seven decades. Married for 66 years to his beloved wife Rachel who survives him, he raised a family of three daughters by making a living for 30 years as a science writer at UCLA, but his real beat was as a journalist in Los Angeles and throughout the Jewish diaspora, a call from Tugent meant that a good story would follow. His subjects ranged from news to arts coverage, uh, including multiple interviews with Steven Spielberg about Schindler's List and the subsequent creation of the Shoah Foundation, now a part of the University of Southern California. In 2019, he returned to Berlin to place one of the iconic brass plaques known as Stolperstein, or stumbling block, in front of his family's former home. Tugin was a consistent contributor to the Jewish Journal from the 1990s until his final piece for the newspaper, an obituary, published in November of this year, a month before he passed. He also served as a West Coast contributor to JTA. Tugin attended the Jewish Journal Gala on November 14 at the Beverly Hills Hotel and received a standing ovation this is a full uh, developing story a full obituary will follow that was tom tujan war veteran and lifelong jewish journalist has died at 97 by susan frudenheim december 8 2022 All right and then there's this one l.a anti-semitic hate crimes rose by seven percent in 2021 report says the report which was released on december 7 found that the total number of anti-Semitic hate crimes in the country was 81 in 2021. The year before, it was 76. By Aaron Bandler, December 8, 2022 Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations 2021 Hate Crime Report found that anti-Semitism hate crimes rose by 7% from 2020 to 2021. The report, which was released on December 7, found that the total number of anti-Semitic hate crimes in the country was 81 in 2021. The year before it was 76. Jews were the targets of 74% of all recorded religious hate crimes in the county. The second highest was Muslims at 9%. A couple of examples listed in the report include graffiti on a Santa Clarita elementary school saying gas chamber and Hitler did nothing and an individual being called Little Jew Boy while being punched repeatedly in the face. Overall, violent religious hate crimes in the county increased from 23 to 53 percent from 2020 to 2021 and hate crimes as a whole increased by 23 percent over that same time period. The total number of hate crimes recorded by the county was at 786, the highest ever recorded in the county's history. Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors Chair Janice Hahn tweeted that the results of the report were disturbing. We are witnessing a wide-scale normalization of anti-Semitism in our county and our nation, Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles Regional Director Jeffrey I. Abrams said in a statement. While this report covers 2021 we have recently seen a terrifying increase in hateful for hateful vitriol from celebrities and elected leaders most recently from with rapper kanye West's repeated tirades against the jewish people we know that words matter and words can and do incite real life violence abrams added that a spike of anti-semitism occurred during the may 2021 israel hamas uh, which, which included a pro-Palestinian caravan attacking patrons outside the Sushi Fumi restaurant in the Beverly Grove area. The best way to combat hate is to stand together as one community against racism and bigotry of all kinds, Abram said. We are grateful to continue to have LA County and our partners at LA Versus Hate as key partners in our work to reduce hate crimes and increase public awareness of the impact these kinds of crimes have on our communities. That was LA Anti Semitic Hate Crimes Rose by 7% in 2021, report says, by Aaron Bandler, December 8, 2022. Okay, we go on now to the uh, commentary section, and uh, this article is called Important AMCHA Study on Jewish Identity Goes Beyond Harvard. It's essential to draw attention to the whole study, which includes the nature, scope, and trajectory of the threats to Jewish identity on over 100 college and university campuses most popular with Jewish students, by David Suisa, December 6, 2022. The assault on Jewish identity on college campuses which AMCHA documented in a new study released this week is noteworthy for its breadth and scope. The media headlines however have focused on one college harvard because more incidents were reported on that campus as important as harvard is though it's equally important to draw attention to everything else in the study which includes the nature scope and trajectory of the threats to jewish identity on over a hundred college university college and university campuses most popular with jewish students among some of the major findings one Incidents involving the suppression, denigration, or challenges to the definition of of Jewish identity were found on nearly 60% of the campuses most popular with Jewish students, with several schools playing host to 10 or more such incidents in the 2021-2022 academic year. 2. Incidents involving attacks on Jewish identity increased 100% to 200% in the academic year following the Israel-Hamas war, with the number of affected schools also increasing dramatically. 3. Faculty and academic departments played a significant role in attacks on Jewish student identity. Schools with academic BDS supporting uh, faculty were three to seven times more likely to have such attacks. And one-third of anti-Zionist challenges to well-established definitions of Zionism, Judaism, and anti-Semitism took place in uh, programs sponsored by academic departments. 4. Jewish anti-Zionist individuals and organizations such as Jewish Voice for Peace played a significant role in attacks on Jewish identity, with the presence of a JVP or similar Jewish anti-Zionist group more than doubling the likelihood that a campus will play host to incidents involving the redefinition or denigration of Jewish identity. Beyond the individual campuses, the most crucial finding in the study is the insidious phenomenon that has taken root on college campuses of late. A pervasive and relentless assault on Jewish identity that is likely to have dire consequences for the Jewish community in the years to come. I wrote about this phenomenon recently when the journal reported on the nine student law groups at UC Berkeley that changed their bylaws to eliminate any Zionist speakers. This was a different type of anti-Semitism, I wrote, and it caught much of the community off guard. The point was not simply to attack Jews, but to erase their identity. This is not just offensive, I added, it's humiliating. What made it even more humiliating is that no other group got this treatment, not Nazis, not homophobes, not transphobes, not Islamophobes, not racists. The AMCHA study has done the Jewish community a major service by showing the full dimension of this phenomenon, providing multiple examples and summarizing the implications as follows. In the short term, The pervasive and well-coordinated attacks on Jewish identity will undoubtedly result in increasing numbers of Jewish students feeling the need to hide their Jewish identity on campus or to detach from Jewish life partially or completely. In the long term, the sheer scope of the assault on Jewish Jewish student identity, which is negatively affecting the level of communal identification and participation of an entire generation of young Jewish adults, presages a major crisis for American Jewry. What exacerbates the crisis is that the nature of the assault makes it harder to combat. Redefining Jewishness and its relationship to Israel, the study notes, directly challenges the recognition of anti-Zionist harassment as a violation of anti-discrimination laws. In other words, as the study elaborates, Efforts focusing on using anti-discrimination law, such as Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, to ensure that Jewish students are recognized and treated exactly as any other protected class group when it comes to addressing anti-Zionist-motivated harassment face considerable challenges because of the nature of the current assault on Jewish identity. As if those challenges weren't enough, the study adds that the pervasive denigration of zionist jews with anti-semitic tropes of jewish power and privilege threatens the assumption that jews constitute an identity group worthy of protected class status nevertheless the study calls for the community to rise to the challenge and find effective strategies to tackle this insidious problem noting that alternative approach is based on an understanding that all students including jewish students have a constitutional right to be equally and adequately protected from behavior that limits their, their self-expression and ability to fully participate in campus life irrespective of their identity or the motivation of the perpetrator must be pursued perhaps most importantly The study reminds us of the power of Judaism and Jewish community to strengthen Jewish identity. The Jewish community must invest in strengthening Jewish life on campus and enabling Jewish students of all backgrounds and levels of prior Jewish engagement to be part of a vibrant community that can provide the support, encouragement, education, and fellowship necessary for not only weathering a toxic campus climate but thriving as Jews. That strengthening of Jewish life and Jewish pride should apply to all campuses, Harvard included. That was important AMCHA study on Jewish identity goes beyond Harvard by David Suisa, December 6, 2022. All right, this next one is called When Anti-Semites Sue the Jews. The suit... Uh, that Al Jazeera has filed in the, in the International Criminal Court could shine an embarrassing spotlight on the network itself by Dr. Rafael Medoff December 6, 2022. The Al Jazeera media network has filed suit against Israel over the accidental shooting of its reporter, Shireen Abu Akleh last May. The history of extremists suing prominent Jews suggests that Al Jazeera may regret what its lawsuit will reveal. The suit that Al Jazeera filed in the International Criminal Court could shine an embarrassing spotlight on the network itself. Those who do not regularly follow Al Jazeera might be surprised to learn that it is a major exporter of hateful content against the Jewish people, Israel, and the United States, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL points out that Al Jazeera has sought to cast doubt upon the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people, referring to it as the alleged Holocaust routinely glorifies violence against Israeli Jews and has ranted against what it calls the control of the Jews over the pornography industry. Al Jazeera is also a record of providing a platform to all manner of virulent anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic extremists in its commentary sections the ADL notes. Another question is whether Al Jazeera should be compelled to register with the U.S. uh, Justice Department as a foreign agent just as the Russian television channel RT was required to register as an agent of the Russian government. Al Jazeera was founded by the government of Qatar, receives funding from the government and maintains extensive ties to the Qatari regime, according to the ADL. Both Al Jazeera and the Qatari Corporation for Public Broadcasting are overseen by the same government official and the U.S. ambassador in Doha determined a number of years ago that Qatar's government uses Al Jazeera as a tool of Qatari statecraft, the ADL reports. Hearings before the ICC but the Abu Akhle case would enable the defense to ask uncomfortable questions about both the content of Al Jazeera's reporting and the details of its relationship with Qatar. Al Jazeera's lawsuit against Israel is somewhat reminiscent of the legal actions initiated by the anti-Semitic agitator Benjamin Friedman against American Jewish organizations in the 1940s. Friedman, a New York businessman who was born Jewish but embraced Catholicism, placed large advertisements in the American press in 1946 accusing Jews of trying to drag the U.S. into a war to create a nationalist sovereign Jew state in Palestine. The ads were assigned by the League for Peace with Justice in Palestine, accompanied by the names of Friedman as a representative of Persons of the Jewish Faith, R. M. Schoendorf representing Persons of the Christian Faith, and Habib I. Katiba on behalf of Persons of Arab Ancestry. The American Jewish uh, c- uh, Committee charged that the uh, perpetrated interfaith coalition was a sham. R. M. Schuendorf was actually Friedman's wife, Rose, and Katiba was, as the AJC described him, a veteran Arab propagandist who did not represent any constituency. Friedman promptly filed suit demanding five million dollars in damages. An AJC leader welcomed the suit as an opportunity to demonstrate in court the nature and character of Friedman and, and his alleged organization. The suit was dismissed before it went far enough to delve into those details, but two years later the litigious Mr. Friedman reopened that Pandora's box. In 1948, Friedman's attorney and close associate, Halam Richardson, sued the non-sectarian Anti-Nazi League because one of its pamphlets stated that the two men had long been known in the halls of pro-fascist propagandists. The hearings before the Manhattan magistrate's court proved disastrous for Friedman's side. The defense produced a cable sent by Friedman to Haj Amin El Husseini, the Palestinian Arab Mufti and Nazi collaborator, praising El Husseini's vision, courage, strength, and struggle on behalf of justice and vowing fullest cooperation with the Mufti's war against the Jews. The defense also revealed a document in which Friedman reported to an associate that he had recently negotiated the immediate establishment of a submachine gun factory in Pakistan. On the witness stand, Friedman refused to explain how the machine guns were to be used. Friedman made a caller for witness, not least because he kept shooting himself in the foot. In one outburst, he denounced the journalist's coverage the, uh, covering the trial as lice. He also used the insulting term, Jew state, for which the court repeatedly admonished him. Nor did it help that Friedman's colleague and attorney, Halam Richardson, had worked with one of the era's most notorious anti-Semites, Joe McWilliams, of the Christian Mobilizers Movement. When Richardson talks about representing McWilliams, of course he has the right to represent him, the judge remarked. But when he becomes an associate of McWilliams, the notorious hate monger, he has very little to complain about. Not surprisingly, the judge dismissed the suit finding that Friedman was a crackpot and that the non-sectarian league's criticism of him and Richardson was proven to be true. If Al Jazeera's directors are not familiar with Benjamin Friedman, this might be the time to read up on him. While they apparently believe their lawsuit will expose some, something unfavorable about Israel, it is more likely that it will end up revealing facts about Al Jazeera that they might prefer not be made public that was When Anti-Semites Sue the Jews by Dr. Raphael Medorf, December 6, 2022. Dr. Middorf is a founding director of the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies and author of more than 20 books about Jewish history and the Holocaust. His latest is America and the Holocaust, a documentary history, published by the Jewish Publication Society and University of Nebraska Press this next one is called ode to small things our historical and religious sources as well as modern writers attest to the very great task of the ostensibly ordinary person to forge a society of honor and dignity and hope by paul stockin december 7 2022 it would be easy to give oneself over to despair in today's war in the world today politics are toxic worldwide in europe Ancient feuds play themselves out once again. Modern technology has turned everyone anxious and frantic with its constant communication. All of this gives the individual a sense of powerlessness. The Athenian historian Th- Thu- Thucydides sounds modern in his well-known declaration that the strong do what they will and the weak suffer as they must. Tractate Semahot of the Talmud 8.7 states that, When kings die they leave their crowns to their sons. When wealthy men die, they leave their riches to their children. But Samuel the small has taken away with him all the desirable things in the world. Samuel the small, Shmuel ha may well have been shortly physical, short physically Khatan, but he was a great Jewish scholar until the first century CE. If the kings and the wealthy leave their power and wealth, What are the desirable things in the world that the Jewish scholar took with with him? The rabbinic story conveys the idea that what most people value are temporary and transient and that true value lies in what people consider small and tangible yet are immortal. In this case, piety, scholarship, and a good name. Note that the names of the kings and the wealthy are not mentioned, but Shemul HaKatan's name is remembered 2,000 years later. The idea that the little guy counts as much as the great giants of any age is a powerful theme of Jewish texts. The Talmud, Barakat 17 a 8 states, Perhaps you say I do great things and he small things. We have learned it matters not whether one does much or little if only he directs his heart to heaven. Shmuel HaKatan did not rule an empire and no statues were erected in his honor, but his legacy endures. In Mishnah Torah 4.17, the philosopher, Maimonides, makes a remarkable statement. Small things are the overflowing goodness that Hashem gave us to settle this world uh, in order to inherit the next world. The emphasis is on small things that are filled with such goodness that they entitle one to heavenly reward. Why? Because they settle the world. I take this to mean that it is not the grand gesture in society that solves the issues between people, but rather the intimate, personal, and caring relationships that are developed over many years. The philosopher turns poet in his comment on Perke About 561, which discusses the Shamir. In Maimonides' words, the Shamir is a small creeping thing that chisels big stone when it goes on top of them, and Shlomo built the temple with it. Now Maimonides was a rationalist, and I seriously doubt that he thought that the Shamir was responsible for the construction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Instead, he suggests that the greatest projects are completed by small actions that cumulatively result in important ventures. We know that at the center of sovereign Israel there stood the temple for hundreds of years. But we forget that the temple and the nation were built and sustained by individuals working together for the common good. It is a subtle but critical reminder that the ordinary, anonymous people are what constitutes civil society. The idea is relevant in our modern age. The American author Danusha Limerich's Small Kindness is a touching and vivid testimonial to the fact that the holy exists in the small gestures of everyday life. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by, and sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it. We have so little of each other now, so far from the tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat, go ahead, you first, I like your hat. Kindness and consideration are like creating a temple, albeit fleeting, and bringing the holy into our relationships and our fractured world. My ode to small things does not suggest that we do not fall prey to forces beyond our control. Much that happens in society is decided by others, often not wisely, sometimes malevolent, but it does affirm the role and the importance of the individual in building what is in our control. Our historical and religious sources, as well as modern writers, attest to the very great task of the ostensibly ordinary person to forge a society of honor and dignity and hope. This sustained effort is at the very heart of the human enterprise, and makes us more than hapless figures on the chessboard of life we have agency in our own lives and the lives of those around us it is important to reflect on this critical lesson in a time of turbulence and upheaval that was ode to small things by paul sokin december 7 2022 and paul paul Sockin, dr paul sokin actually is distinguished Professor Emeritus and founder of the Jewish Studies Program at the University of Waterloo. right, this next one is called Herzl Warned Us by Blake Flayton, December 7, 2022. Theodore Herzl's utopian novel, Altenuland, receives criticism from many Zionists. For one thing, it envisions for the future Jewish state a perpetually secure society never in need of robust defense and over relies on the more European cosmopolitan cities to predict how such a society would be run. Such a book, many argue, uh, though a a staple in the pantheon of Zionist works, is a naive projection of one's own liberal values onto a region and a people that could not bend to fit them. Herzl could not foresee Israel's endless military campaigns, the revival of Hebrew, and the arrival of hundreds of thousands of Jews to Israel from the Middle East, Jews who were not marinating in democratic ideologies and who were more traditional and spiritual in their lifestyles. Therefore, when learning about Israel, many recommend that Altaynulim be studied rather than heeded. And yet after the recent Israeli election, it would be difficult not to concede that what is written in Alteno Lent is still of uh, some value and can still provide a road map for how zionists are meant to run their state if Hursa was able to kick start the jewish national fund the zionist organization and is still regarded as the founding father of the country then his ideas remain paramount even more so because as history would have it Herzl predicted and gave future generations explicit instructions on how to manage one of Israel's current crises, the presence of extremists in mainstream politics. About halfway through Altino Land, in the year 1923, citizens of the new Jewish state or new society head to the polls to choose their government. One candidate is a rabbi by the name of Geyer, who leads a party steadfast in its belief that non-Jewish residents of the land not be awarded political rights. An important note is that Rabbi Gard does not advocate for the expulsion of Arabs from the land just for depriving them of the privilege of civic participation because this is, after all, a Jewish state. In response, during a heated debate, our representative of the society's liberal establishment says, The new society rests squarely on ideas which are the common stock of the whole civilized world. It would be unethical for us to deny a share in our commonwealth to any man wherever he may come from whatever his race or creed, But we stand on the shoulders of civilized peoples. He receives thunderous applause, and the Liberal Party goes on to defeat Rabbi Geyer, who was taunted and criticized by Herzl's fictional political thinkers, for not truly being a Zionist. This scenario is a product of Herzl's time. There was no conversation more prominent in turn-of-the-century Europe than nation-building. A crucial part of this discussion was the status of national minorities and how best to integrate different peoples living in the same land with more rights versus less rights. Therefore, one would be incorrect to say that Herzl's work is out of step with contemporary disputes over civil rights and systems of government, for he lived in the very time when these ideas began to take shape. In 2019, Shlomo Avineri. A prominent Israeli political scientist and expert on Herzl said of Altenuland Herzl, being a journalist, having spent time in France, was very much aware that all societies, including democratic ones, have serious issues. Just as there can be racists in Europe, there can be racists among the Jews. Herzl's conclusion in Altenuland is informed and specific. That the Jewish state must take a particular course, a liberal democratic course that respects the rights of different peoples to sustain its legitimacy and its status among the family of nations. In today's Israel, Rabbi Geyer is best represented by Itamar ben Giver, far right lawmaker and leader of the Ozma Yehudite Jewish Power Party. Ben Giver is poised to become the new Minister for National Security after the Religious Zionist Party, with which Atzma Yehudat merged, scored 14 seats in the last election. The goals of the Religious Zionist Party are transparent, that Israel worked, Israel worked to expand settlements in the West Bank and annex as much territory captured in the 1967 war as possible. Rather than giving Palestinians political rights and thus rendering Israel a binational state, however, religious Zionism foresees a future where peaceful Arabs, who are comfortable living in a Jewish state, have their basic needs fulfilled, but are not awarded the right to participate in the state. Additionally, religious Zionism and Atzma Yehudite advocate for greater incorporation of Halaka, Jewish law, into the public sector, the emphasis of Torah education in public schools, the leg- legalization of gender segregation in public spaces, and chipping away of LGBT rights in Israel. In Altinuland, Herzl warned us that the ideas expressed by Rabbi Geir, which are uncomfortably replicated in today's Knesset, are an existential threat to the stability of Jewish sovereignty and a contradiction to the central idea of it in a holistic sense. In Altinuland, we are entrusted to defeat these ideas at the ballot box whenever we are given the opportunity where they could not be more at odds with the ideological environment that inspired political Zionism and its advocates in the beginning national liberalism, secularism, and democracy. In fact, even Ze'ev Jabotinsky, often regarded as one of the most right-wing original Zionist thinkers, would be considered a Smolani leftist by religious Zionism standards, considering he was an atheist. He was an atheistic Jew who advocated for each minister position in government to be divided between an Arab and a Jew and who directly endorse the rights of minorities in a future Jewish state. In further comments about Altinoland, Shlomo Avineri says, "We can use the book as a mirror by which we can judge our own society today." He continues, In the last few years, there are forces and political parties and leaders in Israel who try to diminish the equal rights of Israeli-Arab citizens, and this is done in the name of Zionism that is utter nonsense. The Zionist vision, as expressed by Herzl, views Israel as a Jewish state that respects the civil and cultural rights of its minorities. Avenera goes on to offer this the interesting insight that Land is one of the only nationalist manifestos that not only serves as a call to build a new society, but also sketches out a model for how this new society should be run. To his knowledge, no other nation has an equivalent. It is my belief that it would be a mistake To take this for granted, to refuse to digest the words of those whose ideas led to Jewish liberation because they were, after all, the most successful. Most successful ideas. They are all the ideas that built the state. When Israelis head to the polls again, which I hope will be in the not so distant future, it would be a mistake not to remember the texts that did the most to create and secure our way of life. That was Herzl Warned Us by Blake Flayton, December 7, 20, 2022. And Blake Flayton is the new media director and columnist for the Jewish Journal. Okay, this next one is called My Message to Douglas Mhoff for his White House Roundtable on Anti-Semitism. We must fight in a strategic and firm way without giving the haters the massive publicity they crave. It is that publicity, as much as anything else, that normalizes anti-Semitism. By David Suisa, December 7, 2022. I have no idea what will be said at Wednesday's White House Roundtable with Jewish leaders on the rise in anti-Semitism and efforts to combat hate. The one thing I know for sure, given that representatives of 13 Jewish organizations will attend, and attend to, in addition to eight officials of the Biden-Harris administration, is that there won't be much time for speeches. But since I received excerpts from the 2nd Gentleman Douglas Emhoff's office of of his prepared remarks, I figured I had enough material to throw my two cents in. This is the gist of his well-intentioned remarks. Right now, there is an epidemic of hate facing our country. Let me be clear. Words matter. People are no longer saying the quiet parts out loud. They are screaming them. We cannot normalize this. We all have an obligation to condemn these vile acts. We must not stay silent. There is no either-or. There are no two sides. Everyone must be against this. These words feel so true and obvious, I can assure you that the many heads at the round table will all eagerly nod. They will nod with such enthusiasm, because we've all heard these words a million times. Epidemic of hate, we must condemn, we must not stay silent. But does Mr. Emhoff sincerely believe we need more of the same? Does he follow the news? Google the words condemnation of anti-semitism and you get 1.45 million mentions. Google denouncing Jew hatred and you'll get 3.1 million mentions. The condemned and denounced hate industry is huge and growing with major philanthropic support. It's not that condemn and denounce are not noble acts. It's just that we've been overdosing on these acts for years without ever asking, is any of it working? It's making us feel good, but how strategic is it? I hope someone gets up during the round table and has the courage and the time to say something like this. Mr. Emhoff and fellow attendees. The most important message we must convey to Jew haters is that they can't hurt us and we're not afraid of them. Jews are thriving in this great country and nothing that haters will do will stop that. They must now—they must know that they do not have the power to disrupt our lives. We recognize that the First Amendment protects even vile and offensive speech so we won't waste our time trying to silence them. When the law, when the law permits, we will seek justice. When institutions show systematic bias against Jews in Israel, we will take action. When we feel physically threatened. We will arrange for security we must fight the haters in a strategic and firm way but without giving them the massive publicity they crave it is that publicity as much as anything else that normalizes anti-semitism it is not silence that emboldens hate but fear and weakness on their part of the victim that's when the haters smell blood That fear and weakness comes through loud and clear every time the haters see the Jewish community get all agitated over yet another incident. We can't allow a state of constant agitation and insecurity to define us. Instead of seeing Jews as alarmed and afraid, Jew haters must see us as confident, proud, and happy as hard-working patriotic Americans going about their lives. The haters must must see how so much of America loves and admires Jews and how our diverse community is completely woven into the fabric of this great nation. Indeed, on that narrative, we must be very noisy. Mr. Emhoff, you said in your opening remarks that, for you, this round table is not the end. This is just the beginning of the conversation. I hope we can include more, this more strategic approach to countering anti-Semitism in future conferences. That was my message to Douglas Amhoff for his White House Roundtable on Anti-Semitism by David Suisa, December 7, 2022. Alright, here's another one. Bibi's Extreme Challenge. In exchange for their support, the three ultra-conservative parties who have allied themselves with Netanyahu's Likud have demanded a range of concessions from him. By Dan Schnur, December 7, 2022. Do Israeli and American Jews need each other? Depending on how Benjamin Netanyahu's new government moves forward, we may be about to find out. Netanyahu emerged from last month's election with a safe majority for his coalition, but one built upon a precarious and ideological foundation. In exchange for their support, the three ultra-conservative parties who have allied themselves with Netanyahu's Likud have demanded a range of concessions from him. Most of them relate to internal security matters, West Bank policy, or Palestinian relations, many of which are controversial, but likely to enjoy popular support in the wake of the ongoing violence that has plagued the country over the last several months. While many American Jews are uncomfortable with such a confrontational approach on these topics, only a small number of U.S. progressives are emotionally invested in the debate. For most of this country's Jewish community, the seemingly ceaseless fighting between the Israeli military and Palestinian terrorists has become little more than political background noise. But Netanyahu's new partners have other ideological goals as well, which strike much closer to the concerns of American Jews. They called for revocation of the so-called Grandfather Clause from Israel's Law of Return, which grants Israeli citizenship to anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent who does not practice another religion and they are advocating an end to official state recognition of conversions performed outside the Orthodox chief rabbinite, effectively ending recognition of reform and conservative conversions for the purpose of Israeli citizenship. Together, these two steps would represent a fundamental redefinition of Judaism and citizenship in the eyes of the Israeli government. They are key components of a proposed override law that would allow a majority in the Knesset to overrule high court rulings and would lay the foundation for a broad application of religious restrictions in Israeli society. Both proposals will remain remain part of the ongoing negotiations between Netanyahu and his partners as long as this partnership remains intact. In other words, the only way these issues will disappear from the political de- debate is if Netanyahu were at some point either realigned or expand his coalition to include representatives of center-right parties as part of a unity government. Absent such a dramatic shift, immigration and conversion will remain at the center of Israeli politics for the foreseeable future. While the primary focus of these changes is not American Jews, but rather those who would emigrate from Ukraine, Russia, and other parts of Eastern Europe, the U.S. Jewish community would see such restrictions as a fundamental and visceral refutation of American Jewry. The number of Jews who emigrate from the United States to Israel each year is much smaller than the influx from from the former Soviet bloc, but American Jews are much more likely to identify as reform or conservative, and a large number of them would be large numbers of them would be understandably insulted and outraged by what they would regard as a severing of their relationship with the Jewish homeland. William Daroff, the well-respected and measured leader of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, has already spoken out forcefully against a newly reconfigured law of return, which is likely to have led to Likud's efforts to distance themselves from their new partner's proposal. Darof has always worked strenuously to avoid criticism of the Israeli government, but he is politically savvy enough and he clearly recognizes the devastating impact these restrictions would mean to the relationship between Israel and American Jews. Darof is right. At a time when public opinion polls show a decreasing number of jews in this country maintaining strong feelings toward israel with an especially precipitous drop in support among young jews the implementation of either of these exclusionary measures would raise seminal questions among american jews about whether they would still be welcome in israel this could easily lead to an irrevocable split in a bond that has sustained both communities since 1948. Netanyahu has chosen his new coalition partners, but for the sake of the American-Israel relationship, he must quickly now find a way to tame them. That was Bibby's Extreme Challenge by Dan Schnoor, December 7, 2022. Dan Schnoor is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine join Danforth's weekly webinar politics in the time of coronavirus www.lawac.org on tuesdays at 5 p.m and we have this one spirituality and mental health go hand in hand by judy grun december 7 2022 surveys reveal that americans continue to move away from traditional religious practices but the yearning for spiritual connection remains strong Research abounds that, confirms, abounds that confirms the link between healthy spiritual connections and emotional health. A new report by Tide Research Institute, The State of Religion and Young People 2022, Mental Health, What Faith Leaders Needs to Know, underscores this truth. Nearly 10,000 young people aged 13 to 25 were asked about their beliefs, practices, behaviors, and relationships with a particular fo- focus on mental health. Pandemic isolation added to emotional challenges for a majority of respondents, 53%. Yet only a third, 34%, felt comfortable speaking to adults living in their adults in their lives about it. More than half of the Generation Zers surveyed reported that spiritual or religious practices helped their mental health, including prayer and meditation. 40% of those who identified as very religious say they were flourishing in their emotional and well, mental well-being, compared to 17%. Who do who identified as not religious, sizable majority who believe in a higher power, pray daily and attend religious services weekly, also reported that they were flourishing. Even for those who struggled the most, religious and spiritual connections seemed to boost mental health. A Jewish respondent, Tiffany 25, described a Jewish upbringing as more of a way of life than about going on going to temple. It was more about your giving, your giving to charity, you're doing volunteer work, you're doing part to your part to make your community a better place. I feel better when I'm doing things to help other people. That gives me something to think about, and then I'm not worried about myself. That's an outlet for me, doing good things for other people. Many young people don't feel seen or heard by the adults and religious leaders in their lives. This makes them far less likely to reach out when they feel emotionally troubled. Dr. Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide observed, it's imperative for religious leaders to recognize that belongingness, uh, belonging, the belongingness process works when young people feel noticed and named and known. An experience of belonging results from a deepening of relationships over time. Religious leaders recognize the pressing need to address me, uh, mental health issues among youth because people cannot build a faith-based relationship with a higher, higher being if they are filled with inner conflicts. What people are most concerned about is young people's mental health, Dr. Packard added, and their concern is warranted. Without addressing mental health issues, a young person who is mentally and emotionally unwell won't be able to really engage with or understand the depth, beauty, power, awe, and love that can come with religion and spirituality. Faith leaders must be equipped to address both faith and mental health issues. The issue of being this issue of being addressed on many college is being addressed on many college campuses, including at USE's Hillel, where wellness director Leenie Baker complements the work of a part-time therapist through programming that supports holistic wellness. As one example, Baker pointed to their Wellness Learning Fellowship, a 10-week discussion-based cohort that explores various life issues through the lens of Jewish text-based learning and psychological tenets. After one discussion on boundaries, one participant told Baker how helpful it was in navigating her relationship with her roommate. Another student who was very hard on herself academically learned to practice self-compassion. In group discussions, wellness skill building usually uh, connects to Jewish practice. As an example, Baker said, gratitude naturally leads to prayer for many students. Post-pandemic, people of all ages are eager for a sense of community. No wonder that USC Hillel's Friday night Shabbat dinners attract between 100-200 participants from across the Jewish spectrum each week, and Baker has seen where Jewish practice and community are paying mental health rewards for students. A young woman told me that she realized a lot of her mental health struggles come from overthinking things, but when she comes to Shabbat services, she allows her brain to stop overthinking and be in the moment. Also, during the high holidays, the students who gave divrei Torah, nearly all touched on mental health issues, saying they hoped to start the year on the right foot. They are including their mental health as part of their spirituality. That was Spirituality and Mental Health Go Hand in Hand by Judy Groon, December 7, 2022. And Judy Groon's latest book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi, uh... Is, Your latest book is The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith. And those are articles from JewishJournal.com. So why don't we see if we can throw in an ad or two while we are still here. From the Marketplace section, to reserve your Marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661. Space reservations and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursdays. Here's a quick one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood Hills, single plot for sale in Soda Levels location in Gardens of Roma. Map E, Lot 6411, Space 3A. Asking price, $18,500. Includes endowment and transfer fee. Sinai price, $20,000. Call 818-882-2300. Email UrielRossoff at yahoo.com. Folks, that'll do it for, for this edition of uh, the Stanton's Jewish Edition. Shalom and peace.